It is wonderful to see the draw that the truth has. No matter what generation, no matter what time, no matter what is happening around us, the truth of who God is is just so compelling. And we see it uh, even with Brooklyn, realizing it this week. Hannah got me choked up. So oh, I thought today was going to be different. It's cancel culture. <laughs> Come on. <sighs> um, welcome to Is It Time for the Church to Change? Florida edition. It's on the humid side this morning. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about cancel culture. Now, this one's a little more nebulous than the other topics that we've had before. They're, they're a little more set in stone. We kind of have our heads wrapped around the topic of politics or abortion or finances. Um, it's, it's a little easier to wrap our heads around where the challenges are with sex. Cancel cultures, I'm going to point out that it's not necessarily new, but the way we've defined it, the way it's presented itself feels a little bit different. So we're going to try and talk about that today. And, and our goal for this entire series, we've wrapped our heads around Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. And this, this verse 6 is spot on for our topic for this week. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, the truth, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And what's happening right now is Cancer culture is presenting itself in so many different ways, and everything comes down to the individual and how they feel it. That ought to know how to answer each person feels more complex than ever. And so here's what I hope to do today. I actually think that cancel culture provides a chance for church culture to actually step back and assess how we respond to challenges. We're watching them respond to challenges, and it's quick and easy always to watch other people, but for the chance for us to actually step back and understand it, God knows exactly what he's doing. This challenge is yet again another gift from God to figure him out and to draw near him. So how are we going to do that this morning? There's actually three steps I want to take to it. The first, in order to get there, we have to understand what cancel culture is. So I'm going to do the best that I can to explain it because it's pretty subjective I'm going to caveat a lot of stuff of this is me. I'm going to show you attempts for other people to try and synthesize what it is. Uh, and then once we kind of get it down to what it is we understand it, we're going to pause and we're going to reflect on ourselves and how it might see us. Again, it's easy for us to look at other people. We do this all the time as individuals. We look at other people and it's easy for us to see the old plink in your own eye part. That's the part where we have a gift to be able to do that. And then once we actually understand how we see it and how it sees us, how do we move forward? How do we deal with this movement that seems to be taking over college campuses and the political conversation right now? It is prevalent everywhere. If you guys haven't felt it already, you're gonna feel it real soon somewhere in your own personal lives. So before we get started and understand what cancel culture is, let me pray for the morning. Lord. This is a sensitive topic. This is a sensitive topic in a way that maybe many of us haven't even processed how sensitive it can be. So guide how we work through this day. Guide my words. Let your spirit fill through me. Let me soak in the truth and the genuineness of our faith that you would have me share. And let us all absorb that and listen with open minds and open hearts. And let us leave here today with an understanding of this broken world and how we can continue to point others to you. 
through its brokenness. Amen. Okay, so what I've learned from talking to some folks and reading articles for eight weeks straight, I have done a lot of reading. I'm a really slow reader, so there's been a lot of time reading books, articles, all kinds of different biases in those articles and stuff. Here's where we're going to try and start to capture what cancel culture is. It's R. Kelly and him being called out in the Me Too movement. Same with Harvey Weinstein. Their indiscretion, indiscretions is an understatement. Their atrocities for how they leverage their power, their influence, their ability to make other people money. Uh, they were held accountable as part of this movement. We have history, whether, whether you feel one side or the other on this, we have history being attacked. Whether or not it's, whether or not holding on to things from our past is actually a viable way to, to be able to move forward. It's even gotten down to our shelves when we go to the grocery store. Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's were called out as part of this movement and have since changed. There is no more Aunt Jemima. Uncle Ben's is now Ben's original based on the pressure from what was perceived as insensitivity. Here, that is neutral. I'm not declaring right or wrong on this one. It even grabbed Dr. Seuss. That was probably the first one that got a lot of people's attention. Was Dr. Seuss got pulled in this? How could Dr. Seuss contribute? The Seuss family actually proactively stepped into the conversation and said, maybe these books are considered insensitive. So whether you agree with them or not, they actually proactively joined the conversation and did this. And then if you've seen the news, if you've read articles at all, Anybody of any ideology, which let's be clear, extremism right now on both sides is the conversation that's getting a chance and getting a platform. One extreme goes to talk, the other extreme violently protests. This is the liberal side. Make fascists afraid again. There's a little sign in there that says, make the guillotine real again. But it happens on the other side as well. The liberal side wants to talk, wants to share where they're coming from. And I'm using these terms. I hate these terms, conservative, because they've, they've just, they're so polarizing now. But I'm using them simply for the sake of giving an understanding of where, because it's a quick, easy way for us to register. But even liberalism is a mental disorder. I, it's such a broad, I mean, even, even you even read about what evangelicalism now, and it's, it's such a broad definition to label things like that conversation has become so difficult. So in all the stuff that I read, I, I see, this is one of those parts where I'm going to declare, I see three parts to what the cancel culture movement is doing. The first is this, they're looking for justice toward historically protected bad behavior. So the R. Kelly and the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. If you haven't noticed, if somebody helps make other people money, if that person does something wrong, the people around them who are making a living off of this person's talent or ideology or ability to get things done, they get scared that it's gonna go away and they panic and they turn a blind eye. So for decades, you get people with bad behavior. The other piece is there's a challenge, statues, our, our grocery store shelves, our bookshelves, a challenge to structures that could be seen as exclusionary or demeaning. There are a lot of people with genuine, real, real pain and genuine, real oppression. 
and to see imagery or to see things continue on, there's a lot of hurt that this actually genuinely stirs up. And so they're looking to have that addressed. And the third is they're looking for an awakening to the real power of words, ideas, and symbols. What did we all grow up with on playgrounds? Sticks and stones may break my bones. Words? Words have power. Words now have gone even beyond what we could understand. The depth and breadth of how words are used, what they mean, how they affect people, this is the piece that I think is the most unique to everything. So we have these three individual pieces. So how do we actually like summarize all of this stuff into one, one basic? And I will caveat as I'm watching you guys take notes. Uh, PowerPoint is available online. I am available for conversations after this. This is a lot. This is scratching the surface. We've actually talked about a couple of these topics. If there's value in, in getting together afterwards for one night and having a conversation, if you guys would like to get together, send a note to the front desk or to me personally. And if there's enough, we'll pull together something formal and we'll all get together. If you just want to have an individual conversation, I'm happy to keep talking about what I've learned from this and we can share what you guys have learned and we'll, we'll continue to work through what this is. So now I'm going to attempt to summarize what those things are. So we're going to look at his individual elements, we're going to put it back together, and then I'm going to pull it apart one more time before we move on. Cancel culture is, I figured I was looking for the most generic place I could possibly find a definition, dictionary.com. If they have a bias, we have a problem. <laughs> Here's how they summarize it. The popular practice of withdrawing support for public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Everybody tracking? It's generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. It's a pretty dry, functional, aligns kind of with those three points. I spent an hour just Googling, tell me what cancel culture is, and I looked at every site, every bias whatsoever, and funny enough, a health and wellness site called Well and Good that's primarily for women, actually, it has several articles on it. I would say they're actually pro the movement, but the language they use really caught my attention. A collective attempt at ruining the reputation and livelihood of an individual or organization in response to a problematic or harmful action or opinion. Ruining someone's livelihood over an opinion. This is what's in the headlines. This is what gets headlines. So now here's my definition. A little bit in between the two of them. It is a mass effort. Social media is a big piece, but there's also an in-person piece. The marches last summer for Black Lives Matter, that is an in-person piece of it too. A mass effort that desires social and economic growth for underrepresented groups. They have a goal in this. They would like to see growth from where they, from where they have been, these underrepresented groups, and aims to achieve it by removing established voices that are believed to have encouraged their oppression. If you've been part of this system that has done this, you guys familiar with the term zero sum? It means for everything that I get, it has to be taken away from you. 
And I think that's actually one of the best attachments to this movement. Every time I get one, the only way I get one is that you lose one. So similar back to the well and good one, ruining the livelihood in order to make progress. These voices, the belief is from this movement, these voices need to be removed in order for them to make progress. Now let's dig deep down at the core because there's a reason why I said it's a mass effort that desires social and economic growth. It's easy to get caught up in what we're seeing in the movement, the salacious headlines, the pain, that just the chaos that's happening on both sides. I actually think there's three things to this movement that we actually can agree are good things. The first, accountability. This is a good thing. They're looking for structures and people that have hurt other people to be held accountable. We like accountability. We have a God who's going to bring justice. We put our hope in that. Knowing that gives us a sense that there will be accountability. We want others to do unto others as they would. We want people to be responsible for their actions. They're looking for sensitivity. There is a history of people being insensitive. It's happening now. The salacious voices on both sides, the people who know how to generate headlines, they're pushing buttons intentionally because it gets them money. It gets them likes, it gets them views, it all translates to money. They're looking for us to be more thoughtful in how we actually talk. We'd like other people to be more thoughtful in how they talk to us at times. Anybody ever been offended by something someone said to you? Sensitivity is a good thing. And they're looking for inclusion. This is good. We don't want people to feel lost or left behind or abandoned. They're looking to be part of this society, all these different groups. So at the core of this, if we actually pause and step back and look at it, there's good genuine attributes for what's happening, why they want what they want. You don't protest for no reason. If you're protesting, you have zero end game. That's a whole other problem. And some can look at cancel culture and because there's so many different little movements of different little things, collectively, they don't really have necessarily an overly shared end game, but they have a connected piece together that I believe these three, three, three things are pointing out to us. This is where it goes wonky for how we would see. How do they try to achieve it? Cancel culture starts from a place of guilty until proven innocent. Why? One, because an angry narrative plays. Someone does something wrong, go at them, blast them wholeheartedly. That's going to get you attention. On the news, in person, on social media, anger plays. So back them into a corner right away. How dare you? What's wrong with you? The other part of the guilty until proven innocent, and this is, this is the part that's, that's probably the toughest to understand because it gets into this weird space of where's that line as a Christian with grace? This movement's looking for perfection from a bunch of broken human beings. If you've ever said one thing that doesn't fit with an ideology, 
that now defines you and you're put away regardless of whatever else is happening in your life. So you're guilty exclusively because of one thing that doesn't align. The second piece that's happening is there's a goal to remove anything that might cause negative feelings. Anything that might cause negative feelings, and that's what I feel. So some people, insults are like water off a duck's back. They move right on, not a problem. Some people are sensitive. I grew up in a house of five. I'm in a house of four right now. Together, keep in mind in the math here, I'm the one central person. There's not two of me. There are eight different ways how we process this. And so in order to handle this, they're trying to separate out anything at all. And this is where that words part, words and ideas and symbols part comes into play. Where this thing is starting, so I've been reading this book, Coddling of the American Mind. It's a fantastic book. Uh, one of the realizations that it tries to find is this is manifesting itself on college campuses. So we're launching our next level of world leaders through this mentality. And this is what's happening on campuses. They go out of their way, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a professor of psychology and emotion research, they go out of their way to say she is well-respected. This is a book that's being written to point out the problems this is setting us up for as a society. They go out of their way to say this opinion comes from someone who is well-respected and good at their job. If words can cause stress, and if prolonged stress can cause physical harm, then it seems that speech at least certain types of speech, see what that says? Can become a form of violence. Words, ideas, and symbols now count as a form of violence. And it's manifesting itself, especially on college campuses and in the political arena. Someone wants to get up and talk about their point of view, and the other side tries to shut it down. There's a statistic in this book, 30% of students approve of violence to shut down someone who's going to speak that, where their speech is, is conceived as hateful. Hateful is a subjective barometer. 30% of students say violence is totally okay. Clearly, I hope we are not on board with that idea. And when you take this mentality, you get to this, and I think this is actually the most harmful piece of it, because this is the part that how, how the goal of removing negative feelings manifests itself. You come to a mentality where you see the world simply as us versus them. You ever been on the outside of a group? Or you've looked at another group and gone, what on earth is happening over there? What's their problem? In a response to us versus them in the book, and this is a response to uh, Professor Barrett's comments. This is the author of the book, Jonathan Haidt. He says, interpreting a campus lecture as violence is a choice. He wants to be clear, everybody has choices. And it is a choice that increases your pain with respect to the lecture while reducing your options for how to respond. There's two things I wanna point out in that. When you take an us versus them mentality, you have to construct a world in which them, they, are horrible. Everything about them is wrong. In order to do that, 
you have to hyperbolize everything that happens and you have to nitpick at everything. So Jonathan Haidt, I love that his name is Haidt, by the way. Um, <laughs> ironic? Um, he's trying to point out that when you set up that construct, you want to know you're going to protest against a them. You're sitting there waiting for the moment to punch. You're waiting for them to slip. You're ready. Your gloves are up. You're ready for the fight. They say the one little thing that's just a little bit off. They, they potentially accidentally use the word they didn't intend in the moment, and you're ready to strike because you've built this construct of them being demons, being absolute evil. And when you've done that, his second part, reducing your options, how to respond, where do you go? Where do you go when you've put that together as your construct of the world? I very consciously, I'm going to challenge everybody here, when we talk about cancel culture outside of our walls, and I'm hoping I'm doing it today, refer to cancel culture as it, not they. It is a problem. It is a breakdown. It can be overcome together. They, they have no hope. They're not wanted around. They are taking down our society. They are impossible to deal with. They end up not being welcome in churches. So think about this as an it. Because if you've ever been in the middle of an us versus them scenario, watched an us versus them scenario, it starts incredibly subtle. People just start aligning in cliques and groups. And you watch things fall apart real quick. If you've worked in a company where there's a bunch of different departments or specific things, they all start to gravitate to their own groups. Mine, you had your, my advertising days, you had your account people, they were the ones who had to deal with all the legal and functional stuff. You had your creative people that everybody thought that they wanted to be, and so the creatives had the big ego. I was in the strategy department. We were, we were expected to bridge the gap between the two, and usually you end up getting grabbed on one group or the other, so you feel the us versus them. You're sitting in the middle of it every single day. Guess where we always wanted to go to? The creatives, because they're cooler. But being in the middle of this, you can feel how that construct just starts to fall apart, and the infighting and the lack of... of positive interactions, the lack of growth, the lack of being able to accomplish anything disappears when you go us versus them. And we really stop and we work through all of the stuff that's happening in cancel culture, trying to define it, trying to, to analyze it, trying to think about it. I think it simply comes down to this. Cancel culture, it's a response to pain and suffering. Raise your hand if you've never felt pain or suffering in your life. It's universal. This is our common ground. They're responding to pain. Now, there's lots of little subtle subtext arguments about what's legitimate pain and what's legitimate suffering when words start to change their meaning. a little harder to rally around. But when we even strip back that level and we're able to have a conversation about pain and suffering, we can make progress. 
Now, what comes along with pain and suffering in so many instances, I've struggled with a healthy analogy. I'm going to go here. Bear with me. This is, this is pre-Brian wrapping his head around Jesus. I played a lot of hockey. I loved playing hockey. I also, even with this build, you want to talk about stupid, this build, these, these lack of biceps, had a pension for vigilante justice and protecting my friends. Punch me in the mouth, I'm fine. Punch my friend, you're going to get it from me. It got so bad I had to stop playing hockey about 15 years ago. Because every game, every slight to one of my teammates, I was ready to go. And I was still carrying that game to game to game. We went back and played a team for the second time. I already knew that guy. He barely steps out of line. I'm going to get him. And what I had created was this. I had created this unhealthy response to pain and suffering. I didn't like my friends getting cheap shots, getting bloody lips and stitches, missing part of the game because of an injury. And I built this unhealthy cycle. And I know I'm not the only one, whether it's relational, physical, our response to pain and suffering. You hit your head on a cabinet, the first reaction is give it back to the cabinet. Ow, that, that hurt, cabinet. Our bodies naturally want to respond to pain and suffering. We want to try and get control back in our lives. When we're hurt, we feel like victims. My first gig in advertising started back in 2001. I got a chance to work on ABC television. It's cool. I literally was working for Michael Eisner. Like I was sending emails that two, two people passing on and we go to Michael Eisner. I knew who that guy was. I didn't know who this Bob Iger guy was that I was sending things directly to. Turns out now he's a somebody. <laughs> I launched two shows when I was, during my first, couple, my first couple years on that. One was The Bachelor, you're welcome. <laughs> Todd would not have had a story last week if it wasn't for me and my team's efforts to get it out there. The other one was this show back in 2004 where they took two families and they took members of the family and they had them switch households for two weeks. Some of you remember this. It actually was this genuine show that tried to help families and have other people watching this understand patience and kindness. And maybe my way isn't the only way, but there was a brilliant marketer. Actually, it started in England, apparently, but there's a brilliant guy who said, I know how to get people to watch this. We'll call it wife swap. So I worked on wife swap. In fact, my, my brilliant marketing idea for wife swap was to put the ads on conservative talk radio so that Dr. Laura and Rush would talk about it and we get free press. <laughs> They love that. I think I got promoted because of that idea, actually. A week after the show launched, the head of marketing ABC sent us a couple of examples. The hate mail was pouring in. Because during this time, Southern Baptists have decided that they were anti-Disney over the idea that Disney would give benefits to their LGBT employees. So they boycotted Disney. So they had built this cycle. Anything Disney did, any crack in that, any issues, any morality challenges, they were going to pounce. So we see this form letter. Dear Mike Benson of ABC Television, your show, fill in the blank, Wife Swap, is abhorrent. Name calling in a form letter, all of these things, signed, 
you sign your name. And it goes, this was, this was during email was like, we watched websites line, line by line at this point. Um, so this was a letter writing campaign. It was a collective of several focus on the family types. I don't remember exactly who was behind it, but it was a collective of these family groups for, for the betterment of America. Now I was away from the church at this point. I hadn't come back. And I worked with Jews, atheists, fringe Christians. In this attempt to control the world falling apart around them, the pain and suffering for the Southern Baptists and family-endorsed people, they lashed out over something they didn't even understand. And what response did all the people at ABC and the people at Shia Day Advertising get from this? They don't even know what they're talking about. They didn't even watch the show. And this is where stepping back to look at what's happening in culture right now is key, because I believe this to be true. The church is not immune to unhealthy responses to pain and suffering. The members of the church individually and corporately. Now, it starts from here. Let's look at it the same way we just looked at cancel culture. In building this unhealthy cycle, it starts from a good place. We experience pain and suffering. The church experiences pain and suffering from seeing God's creation not honor him. This is a good thing. We're upset. Take the example I had. We're upset that the family unit is being challenged. That things that don't have, don't have a right to be in prime time when families sit down to watch television are happening. This is good. This is righteous indignation. We want God to be promoted. We want his glory to be seen. And so we passionately fight for what we believe in. We get together. We figure out how we're going to get this to stop. We're going to restore the kingdom. And in that zeal, we make missteps. Just like the rest of broken humanity, we're still broken. We're not perfect. And when we don't take the time to step back and understand where we're coming from, these missteps are the things that make headlines. And the headlines are how other people see us. Because when the people outside the church see us, they don't see Catholics over here, and these are the Lutherans, and here's the Presbyterians, and we got your evangelicals over here. They don't, they don't see that. It's the church. And when the church missteps, we all have to wear that when we have conversations with people outside the church. It becomes part of our story in order that we have to work through with them in order to have a conversation. And so these missteps usually come from this. They hear this. When we, when we send hate letters to ABC over something we don't even understand, and let's be clear, the church has done some wonderful things for people that don't make headlines, and there are things like abortion where we stand and it is a good thing. There are lots of good areas where we stand. Maybe the tactics aren't necessarily the best, but there's lots of good areas where we stand. But all they hear is, you're telling me, let's be clear, I have no idea about God. I've never seen a Bible in my life. I've only heard the words Jesus and God because they've been 
in their perspective, forced upon me at school, or my parents grew up in a church and they were burned and so they swore I would never go anywhere near a church. We got people who are uninformed on the legitimacy of who God is and who Jesus is. And we just say, gay is bad. Your behavior is atrocious. And they don't even know where it's coming from. So all they see is we're creating rules that we demand that other people have to follow. Trite example. A few years ago, everybody remember what this is? Christmas cups at Starbucks. They took Merry Christmas off the cups at Starbucks and Christian social media lost their mind. There were stories of pastors walking into Starbucks and yelling at 19-year-old baristas over Merry Christmas, not being on a cup. It is noble to want Jesus' name to be glorified. But we get lost sometimes in pushing the truth that we don't remember how to deliver it. You think a 19-year-old has any say in one store, has any say over cups having it? You think Starbucks owes the Christian church anything? They have pumped so much caffeine into pastors so that they could do their job. They are doing exactly what they're supposed to for the church. <laughs> they don't owe anything else. They have never promised faith. They have never promised that they were going to do anything for Christianity. But they got jumped on over something that is not a major. And these are the things that people take with them. It's not just that. We have to wear the crusades when someone wants to point out what's wrong with the church. Because all it takes is a couple of headlines, and that's what people get in their head, and, and all of a sudden, rubber stamp on every problem. So for us to assess that maybe this is what we're seeing in cancel culture, perhaps we're doing the same thing. We can never truly understand it or come alongside it or even be the antidote to it if we're not able to actually step back. Because in all of our missteps, they also make sure they see our inconsistent behavior which is what we're, with what we're demanding. How could you not promote Jesus who's love and we're promoting that by yelling at a 19-year-old barista? They see the hypocrisy. We have conversations all the time with our friends who swear they're never going to go to a church. They love us. They knew Brian before he became a pastor. They knew us when we were going to church and everything. And we're very open with our faith. I've even told several of them, I'd love to sit down and read a Bible with you because you're smart enough. I'm convinced you'll actually understand it and you will come around. But these are relationships now that have joined in 40 and 50 year olds, not just college age people that are starting to take on the behaviors of cancel culture and these conversations are becoming more and more difficult to have. We're feeling it in our house. Friends with kids in college, friends with kids in high school. We're feeling this. If you've got grandkids, if they're at that age, you may be starting to notice that it's getting tougher and tougher to have conversations because the extremism is happening. So how do we actually break this? There's this unhealthy cycle in cancel culture. There's this unhealthy cycle in what's happening with words and ideas and how we can actually communicate. And when we actually step back, we've contributed to it. We being the church have our moments where we've contributed to it. And so we're part of this cycle as much as anybody else. So how do we actually break this cycle? It starts here. We have a difference. 
when you don't have Jesus, when you don't have scripture, you're going to grab onto whatever the short-term thing is. We as a church, we have the truth. We have the truth to go back to even when we misstep. We have the truth to go back to. And that will break this cycle. Paul in his letter to the Romans captures this beautifully in Romans 12. He's just come out of explaining what sin is, what faith is, who Jesus is, how he's conquered, what this means in your life now that your life has completely changed. And in chapter 12, he gets in this. So what do you actually do about it? And one of the first places he goes is this. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affections. You guys see that? Love. Hate evil. Hold on to truth. Love. Even Christian culture gets so obsessed with promoting truth, Paul couches it. It's a truth sandwich. It's love, truth, love. Don't ever lose the love in delivering the truth. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Realizing, even Paul, man, it's a broken world. Do the best you can. Beloved, never avenge yourself. That cycle of pain and suffering, never avenge your pain. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, if we were in Romans, I'd spend a lot more time on this idea, what exactly it drills down, because there are people that are split, whether it means they'll just be embarrassed and come along, or it means, nope, God's just going to take care of them. Either way, there's nothing added to our ledger. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we've got these 12 verses. Here's what I think Paul is saying in four points. First, I mentioned in verse 9, lovingly stand for what is good in God's eyes. We never lose sight of the truth, and we never lose sight of love. They can't be separated Truth without love loses its impact. Love without truth just gives people a nice warm blanket before they go to hell. To be clear, it's important. We cannot separate these two things. We have to learn how to have them together. 
We handle pain and suffering with hope and patience. When we're hurt, it still hurts. It's real. And there are some levels of hurt. There are levels of damage. There is abuse that is abhorrent. And I'm not trying to cheapen that. But Paul's trying to point out to us, we don't immediately go lash back out and take them down over it. We process the pain differently. Some of this pain may be actually going to authorities and going through a formal legal criminal process, if that's what the hurt was. But we don't go eye for an eye. We don't go to damage them the way they've damaged us. And we come alongside people. And we meet them where they are, no matter how messy it is, no matter how difficult the conversation, no matter how much cancel culture has taken over their lives. We find common ground. We work toward the common ground. And lastly, that how we handle our pain, how we handle our hurt, we do it in a way that astonishes absolutely astonishes the broken world. When they get punched, they punch back. And they are shocked when we don't. It's that moment where they actually pause and go, you're different, why? It's that moment where we actually separate ourselves from everybody else. How do we actually deal with pain in that way? I think it comes down to this question. How do we live in light of these challenges that create pain and suffering and this cycle that happens? How do we actually overcome that? How do you actually overcome evil with good? It's so easy to just go punch them back or talk behind their back or work the system to get them taken down. It starts here. We actually trust that God has this too. This personal pain, this cancel culture movement. We actually trust that the God who created the universe, that the God who hung with Israel the entire time they kept turning their back and stayed with them, the same God who gave them a savior. And then that savior who brought the kingdom here, we trust that what they say is true. We trust that in spite of the fact that our finite minds maybe can't see past it, we have faith and we have hope that God is in control. So today, we're going to take communion. And because I forgot to grab one, I'm going to steal it from my daughter. (laughs) Nothing says communion and community like stealing one from your daughter. There goes, the move. there goes the moment. Um, guys, we do this together as a reminder. A reminder of who God says he is and who his son says that he is. So when Jesus was in the upper room that night and he said, this is my body. This is my body that I'm giving for you, thank you.
we hold fast to this and we remember it. That in the face of physical pain and suffering, he stood confidently and he shared with the disciples, this is the reminder that this will be overcome. This is the reminder of what love and truth looks like. And then he said, here's my blood. My blood is the covenant. My blood is a covenant for the forgiveness of sins. These missteps inside the church and outside the church, there is hope. There is hope for forgiveness because Jesus is who he says he is. Because he died for us and because he rose for us, we can take this with confidence that his covenant with us is true. Let's take a couple moments and, and reflect on that. Reflect on who Jesus is. In light of our personal pain, if you're holding on to something, if you're feeling hurt, if there's a relationship that's been broken because of a cycle of pain and suffering between you guys, let's offer that up right now. one more thing in the upper room that Jesus shared that night. Guys, you can put the PowerPoint back up. John captured this. He captured that Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So even if you think 
you don't handle conflict well, if you think you handle conflict too well and struggle maybe to work with people, to actually be the antidote to a culture that is challenged to be able to find common ground, we're told there's one simple thing and it's inside all of us that we love one another. So this is how we break this unhealthy cycle. We constantly treasure and reflect on Jesus' love and truth. What he did is the ultimate example. We always go back to that well. When we're hurt, when we're lost, we go back there. And then we interact with this movement, we interact with people who are trapped in this movement. We ask genuine, caring questions. We build a bridge to them. In love, we actually want to know where their pain is coming from. No matter how confusing or illogical it may be, we're willing to sit and to talk. And proof that we're asking genuine questions, we actually hear it. We listen and we hear their pain. And we do it in love. We do it in that place deep down inside of us that gets choked up when we think about God. We do it from that place that desires better, that place where you actually feel brokenhearted for what someone's experiencing when they're lost and they have no hope. We hear that pain. And we aim to meet their needs. Maybe they don't need to hear right away about their souls. Maybe they need a sandwich. Maybe they need a glass of water. Maybe they need help moving. Paul said it. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them food. Our behavior in love helps to earn the ability to then talk about their soul, to then ask the questions, to listen genuinely, and to respond in love and in hope. And the last part, I think this is the only way that we can do that. We, in our faith, have to fix our lives first. We have to work through our hurt. And we can. We work through our hope, our hurt, because we have hope. Because we understand who God is. We have the ability to actually have hope on the other side to believe that our spiritual lives are more important, that our eternal lives will be enjoyed and celebrated in heaven alongside him because of the example he has given us. So we go confidently into this world that is broken and lost and struggling to find common ground because we know who God is and we know how he wants us to love in truth. So gracious Heavenly Father, wrap your arms around this church, <clears throat> around this world, around the communities that have no hope. Unleash the love from inside of all of us with so many distractions and so much pain and so much hurt. Unleash that love. Let us as a church affect this culture. Let us just blow their minds and inspire them of what understanding you looks like in this world. In your name we pray.
Amen.